I will stand by the comments I made at the end of my previous episode. Politics, political science, I do believe are a mystery to most people. Although that doesn't generally stop anyone from getting into heated debates on the same subject. I've largely sidelined myself from these discussions because they have a certain repetition and tone to them that really doesn't appeal to me. I kid you not, if you Google political arguments, there is a plethora of articles from publications like Scientific American and Business Insider giving advice on how to conduct yourself when discussing politics. For instance, never raise your voice, or don't drink alcohol when engaging in political arguments. However, there is this other field, political science, and it has an extra word I quite like attached at the end of it. I remember people taking poli-sci in university, although after undergrad, the field basically dropped off my radar. I say basically because there was one exception. Mark Tressler did that undergraduate in political science. He did it at McGill University, but then he stayed at McGill and did a master's degree on the same subject. But that was years ago. Since then, he's had three different bodies of work published in peer-reviewed journals and is literally months away from concluding his PhD, already having been awarded things like Best Graduate Student Paper. On top of all that, he's even contributed to MSNBC's election coverage during the 2016 American election. I'm fairly confident that Mark has an enlightened and educated opinion on how political science and politics function. To be honest, this is an aspect of life that, speaking personally, I really need to be better informed on. So if you've ever wondered what those 20-somethings do with their poli-sci arts degree, or how someone can successfully live and work in this crazy world of politics, keep listening, because this is Mike Syme with How to Be a Political Scientist. Thanks for joining me here today, Mark. Oh, it's great to be here, Mike. It's good. I've never been on a podcast before. This well, is... it means a lot to me. I appreciate that this is your first one, and appreciate you doing it with me. Mark, I feel like we need to approach this whole subject of political science and statistics rather delicately. I don't want to scare anyone off, especially right at the start. So can you tell me in relatively simple terms, what is political science? At its broadest level, right? I mean, political science is really just about collective decision making applied to the distribution of goods. There's a famous quote. Harold Laswell. Politics is who gets what, when, and why. And so politics very broadly, right? Who gets what? When do they get it? Why do they get it? Right? I mean, that's no matter the system of government, those decisions are going to be made. All right. So I'm going to need you to clear something up for me, Mark, because the other day you referred to yourself as an Americanist. An Americanist. In a regular conversation which I thought was weird, but I let it slide. How can you fit that word, an Americanist, into the definition that you just made? Yeah, that is an odd word to say. Yeah. So political science, generally speaking, we can go down from the top bottom. What, what is it made up of? Um, and we can say, within political science, there's international relations, which is the study of how countries interact with one another. There is uh, political theory, which is you know philosophy, there's comparative politics, which is about how people in different countries are different from one another. And then there's often just like country studies. Yeah. So you can be a Canadian politics expert mm -hmm. 
and you can be an American politics expert. AKA. AKA an Americanist. And so the training that I have gotten is a lot to do with how American politics functions. Having said that, uh, because I study political behavior, voting behavior, how people make decisions, there are things that are particular to the American case with that, but people's brains are brains everywhere. And so I try not, I know I said that out loud in conversation, but I try not to (laughs) call myself an Americanist because I think of myself more as somebody who studies voting behavior Mark, I have known you from your pre-Americanist days, before you started all this political science, but I really don't know how you got here exactly. To me, it seems like a bit of a random jump, especially since there wasn't really a great introduction in high school classes, for instance. There was, actually, yeah. Did you not take it? No, I definitely (laughs) didn't. Did you take it? I did, with Mr. Connors. So was that... I mean, was that instrumental in your decision to go into political science? Well, it's interesting because I've always liked politics. And that course was great, Um, but it was really, you know, it was a political history course, which is what you need when you're 17. You know, you need to understand what what happened. Where are we? What, what, you know, what's going on in politics? And it was really about that. And it was a great course. I think we talked a lot about U.S. history and U.S. politics. And in my household growing up, just my, my family likes talking about politics. And, you know, it was a pretty heady time of U.S. politics in the early 2000s when we were growing up. And that was, you know, often a topic of conversation. And so I always enjoyed those things. And that was kind of my motivation to get into it, which is which is not at all what I ended up really doing in the sense that that kind of that sort of stuff about like, oh, I like talking about politics and what's going on right now. That would have made me a good political journalist. It was really that got me into it. But what what stuck me there was this kind of broader scientific social inquiry that kind of I later discovered further on in my political science career, oh, this is actually what political scientists do. They're not journalists. Opposed to journalism, like you were just mentioning, I don't think political science is on too many teenagers' radars, especially the more scientific element of it, like what you do. No. So when did you first realize that what you're doing today could actually be a full-time job? Yeah, I I would say it it was relatively later on. Maybe the the second or third year of my undergraduate degree. Which was a degree in what? In political science. But often there's a lot of back matter to understanding politics. Who did what, when, history, stuff like that. But oftentimes in undergraduate training, uh, we shield undergraduates from the actual research enterprise of political science and instead talk about the conclusions and, and, and stuff like that. But it was, I remember, I you know, I took a course in my third year at McGill. And it was a goal of the professor of that class, uh, Professor Dietlin Stolle at McGill, who, it was her goal to say, we're going to demystify the research process. How do we know the things that we know? And make it so you can feel as a student that you can be a participant in this too. And that was the first time where I really started to see, okay, I'm understanding the way that we're applying the scientific method here. I didn't know a lot at that point. I didn't know really that much about statistics or stuff like that. But I was starting to see, okay, how do we ask the right questions? How do we how do we know what we know? How do we determine whether what we're seeing is real or whether it's happening by chance? All those things started to filter in at that point. Uh, and it was because somebody actively decided, okay, let's de- demystify this research process. Was that around the same time you decided to stick with it and do a master's? When did that happen? So I think it would have been about in my third year there when I started to do the practice of political science. When I first was able to say, here's a data set. And I was really bad at it. But, you know, saying, okay, I can answer these questions. And I I, I specifically remember 
that professor in that class gave me the idea that was like, we could write this paper together and it might get published. And I was like, oh, I can do this. <laughs> like, oh, I can be a part of this. And I like doing it. And that was the first time where I was like, okay, I think this is something that's worth pursuing. And then right. over the course of the next year, I took a course uh, with a professor named Stuart Soroka, who ended up being my advisor during my master's and is still, a, a, we've co-authored together and it's kind of, it's been a, a you know, my most important mentor. And that through those, you know, through that six month process, I said, okay, I'm good at this and I like doing it. And hey, I can stick around for a master's here at McGill and let's, let's give that a try. And I mean, also I, I'm good at this and I like it and people will give me money. People, people will give me money. Monetary flow was less good sure. <laughs> sure. at the start. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit better now doing in a, a PhD at an American school is a pretty good deal. Yeah. People should know that. So back when you decided to keep doing your master's, did you think as well, oh, I'll definitely do a PhD? Yeah. No. No, I did not. I, I think I had to be convinced of the lifestyle a little bit more. Both convinced that I could do it. There's the imposter syndrome aspect of it. I was like, can I, can I do this? And then also just, you know, the lifestyle of, you know, is this, is, is this the kind of lifestyle that I want to have? And I remember, I remember being in my master's and being very tired. <laughs> we lived in this terrible apartment in the Mile End in Montreal. It was cold all the time. It was so cold. And I woke up early and it was dark out and I was standing in the shower. And I was had to go to work. I had to finish a paper. But I was standing in the shower and I was like, yeah, I, yeah, I think this is for me. Like, yeah. I think like for some reason, I just remember standing there being like, yeah, okay. You can, you can yeah, keep doing this. I can keep doing this. Yeah, I like doing this. Something about the, the grind of it that I kind, of, I kind of enjoy. And so you've been living and working and doing that grind in Nashville, Tennessee for the last several years. How did you end up there? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one I ask myself all the time. <laughs> Suddenly, I find myself in the southern United States. Uh, so yeah, so I did my my undergrad and master's at at McGill, and that was a great experience. Um, when I was looking forward to doing a PhD, the political science training in the United States is much more quantitative, has much more to do with statistics, much closer to economics than it is in Canada, which it was I would say is much closer to something like sociology. That's a generalization, but it's mostly true. Um, and just looking forward, that's that's the kind of political science that I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to get in at Vanderbilt. And it's a really, it's a it's a good program. It's a it's a relatively young in terms of the age of the professors there and kind of dynamic. And Nashville's an interesting place to live, more so than some other places that have universities. And I've enjoyed it. I expect you probably think otherwise, Mark. But I've always kind of thought the term political science was a bit misleading because to me, if you call it science, you're comparing it to things like physics and chemistry, things that you can have experiments for. Mm -hmm. Whereas in political science, it seems like more of it is observation and not really experimental. It's a little bit of both. It depends it depends what you're working on. But but let me say this. I I think the biggest thing to, to think about in terms of social sciences, hard science, soft science, all these things is... I remember reading this somewhere, and I, I'm not going to remember where it was, but someone saying the content of science is the method. So what does that what does that mean? So when we think often, we think about science, we think about the content being content. We think about cell structures and the laws of physics. But really, when you when you boil it down, what science is is a method of inquiry, and there are no questions that can't be 
approached with that scientific method in mind. And so just because questions of politics of group behavior are messier or more complicated or it's harder to isolate causes from noise doesn't mean that you can't approach that with the scientific method. We think more as social scientists, we think more about the scientific method and how to determine if things are actually happening or happening due to random chance because it's so hard. So this scientific aspect of politics, uh, this is something that you think you're good at, like compared to the journalism element that you mentioned before, you like doing this science of politics. Yeah. Well, let me tell you first off the back, I, I, I don't like talking to people on the phone. So that was pretty much it for me in journalism. But yeah, I think that I think that I, I, I do have a skill in breaking down complex problems into smaller bits. Right. And that's 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 the kind of the, the big thing to, to when I was, you know, I was talking about let's not get caught up in the moment of politics as political scientists. Let's see things as generalizations. The trick there is to be able to to, to break these things and to say, okay, what is this an example of? And I think I have a, an ability of that. And I think I have an ability in statistics and computer coding that, that makes it easier for me to be a political scientist. I find it very interesting how these things change for me. So if you were to ask me years ago uh, how much statistics and coding there was in politics, I would have said very little. Yeah. But obviously, Mark, if you're able to make a career out of it, there's got to be a bit more to it. Uh, probably a pretty good summary uh, is if you could describe one of the papers you wrote. When I was reading it, it seemed like a question that looked quite simple. And yeah. then it gets really muddy unless yeah. you approach it statistically. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's a good, I think that's a good way to talk about what what is it that political scientists do and why is it that coding and statistics is such a big part of my of my life now so i have a simple question my simple question is this i want to know if american media makes canadians more politically polarized we're inundated with american media and so i want to understand what how is that affecting the political attitudes of canadians and in particular is it making us more polarized is it making left-wing people more left-wing right-wing people more right-wing now, we can imagine trying to answer this question in this way. Say, okay, well, I'm going to survey a bunch of people. Yeah. And I'm going to ask them, how much do you watch CNN and Fox News? And then I'm going to see who watches a lot, who watches a little, and see if they're polarized or not. We'd probably be pretty unsatisfied with that answer because we said, okay, well, it might be instead that people who are more polarized are more likely to watch CNN and Fox News. Yeah. So which direction is that causal arrow running? Right. So that's a kind of a classic social science problem. Right. Where it seems like, OK, this is a pretty easy thing to do. But when you get to surveying people, that's really tough. And so in the paper you're talking about, what I did is said, OK, well, one thing that happened was in 2009, the American TV networks were mandated to switch to over the air digital HD TV. In 2009, they all switched from having analog, you know, you have rabbit ears on your TV and you get this grainy analog signal, to instead when you have rabbit ears, you get this beautiful HD TV signal. People in Montreal, because it's pretty close to the border, were putting up rabbit ears and suddenly being able to watch the NFL uh, in HD on Saturday. Or Sunday. What day do people watch NFL? <laughs> I've been living in the States for six years. I still don't understand football. So instead of surveying people, I'm going to look at the physical location of all the polling places in Ontario. There's 23,000 polling locations in Ontario. And I'm going to measure using GIS, geographic information systems software, 
the expected TV signal in each of those polling stations. So whether they're close to the border, whether they're far away from the border, whether there's hills in the way, stuff like that, and say, okay, well, now, instead of asking people whether they watch CNN or not, we're saying you were your geographic area was given a level of TV signal, right? And say, how did you react before and after as a collective group to getting that TV signal. So instead of just asking thousands of people, yeah. you're literally just looking at how their voting behavior changed from one election to the next. Yeah, by looking at looking at their voting, because there was elections, Canadian elections in 2008 and 2011. Yeah. So we can look at the change and how certain areas acted mm-hmm. based on this, this level of TV signal that they didn't choose. Yep. That's it, the important they part. They were just exposed. They were just exposed to it. Yeah, they yeah. didn't choose it. And there's a couple, there's, you know, there's more assumptions built into that and there's other stuff. But, you know, basically we can see the difference between those two methods of inquiry, right? One where we say, oh, we don't really know. They maybe, maybe we surveyed people, maybe they were polarized and chose the TV. Maybe the t- they started with the TV and then became more polarized. Here we know they didn't have anything to do with that signal, yeah. right? That is beyond them. And can we see what how they respond to that, right? And so within that problem, though, there's a lot of collecting data and manipulating data and measuring things and statistics that's under the hood just to try to get to a simple answer of what's happening here. Like, how long does it take to write a paper like that? What is the breakdown? What are the steps involved? Writing it the first time, doing all the statistics, writing it the first time, I'd say that's 40% of the work, maybe. Maybe less. Right, right, right. Actual, actual creating it. Actually, actually creating. Actually, well, coming up with the idea is hard, but like you know, running all the statistics, writing it up the first time, intro, literature review, method, results, conclusion. That's your forty percent done. You're revising forever, and that's the hard part. But like you, you sculpt the thing, and then the rest is f- like progressively finer grits of sandpaper. And ultimately a polish. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then your advisor comes in and takes an axe to it. (laughs) It turns out out people didn't want that table. (laughs) Or a a professor at another school was building the same table and they did a much better job. But coming up with that table, though, like with your your TV tower uh, paper, Mm -hmm. like that to me is kind of a novel. To me, it's a novel concept. Do you... Are you expected to come up with these by yourself? How much does your supervisor contribute to like the actual creation of the idea? Yeah, so that's that's one of the big differences from political science to more traditional science things. My understanding in traditional science things are often brought in to do a PhD and you're on somebody's project or you're right. in somebody's lab, right? And you're saying, you know, uh, yeah, we study this fungus here at this lab and that's what we're going to do. Political science, you are expected to come up with unique and new ideas. It is a little bit funny that at the end of this paper, you still can't say that you've proven that this effect is true from the TV towers. You can only say that it's very, very likely to be true. That's right. And I guess in that sense, political science is just as valid as physics or biology because just like in those fields, nothing is able to be proven 100% or yeah. just in general, you can't prove anything 100%. Yeah, absolutely. We give probabilistic answers to phenomenon and we're explicit about the assumptions that got us to that that's you can say that same thing if you were a scientist working at cern right now absolutely absolutely and you know maybe they you know so we talk about p values is a a thing that gets thrown around and a p value 
you know, is so you get your result at the end and you have a p-value attached to it. And the p-value in the simplest possible terms is the probability that this is happening due to chance. So you want it to be low. <laughs> right. and, and and so, you know, that's the thing that we report at the end of the day. And we say, we say, okay, well, so I wrote this paper about the TV signals. And I say, okay, well, for every additional 100 kilowatts, I'm making this up right now because I don't remember the numbers. Every additional 100 kilowatts of data, the Liberal Party loses 3% of support, the centrist Liberal Party, which is evidence that this is polarizing people. Mm-hmm. And it, it, what statistics give us, why statistics is different from math is we estimate a probability that what we're seeing there is actually happening in the real world and is not just a result of noise, right? right? And so it says, okay, when the p-value attached to that is 0.01, if there was no relationship, the probability of getting something this extreme would be 1%. And generally we say if it's under 5%, then we think it's real. Okay, so as opposed to p-value, confidence interval is the one I seem to remember more from stats in university, yeah. where you wanted a high confidence interval, and usually, you, I guess, like over 95%. Is this the same thing as p-value? This is an odd thing. Confidence intervals are very misunderstood, and I don't even want to talk about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is like, it's like, uh, you, like there's things in your field that are surprisingly controversial. Sure. <laughs> so, but uh, the definition of a confidence interval is one of the things. But it's not. I don't want to talk it's about. It's not one minus the p value. Uh it's the no. It's not. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. It is. If you, I'm gonna say that. I'm gonna say the definition, and you're gonna edit it out later. I hope. It is. If you repeatedly did, the analysis, ninety five percent. If you do a ninety five percent confidence interval. 95% of the confidence intervals that you construct will contain the true population parameter. There was there was the textbook definition of a confidence interval, but that's way different than what people think it is, and it's not a, not an especially helpful thing to say. <laughs> that is exactly why people are so afraid of statistics. Yeah, there is. Oh, yes, but I, I mean. Compa- comparing stats to other concepts that are hard to understand. There's just no analogies. Like you can poke two holes into a piece of paper and then give a basic understanding of how wormholes might work. Or you might call uh, the mitochondria in a cell the powerhouse, and then people get what it does a little bit better. Yeah. But I don't think there are any good analogies for p-values and confidence intervals. There is. I Like there, there are things that are – that like the thing that I just said about the confidence intervals was – totally mystifying and even i have a hard hard time wrapping my head around it but i think there's a common sense core to to statistics that people miss so let me say this let me give you one example let's say i have a coin and i say i want to know if this is a fair coin as in it comes up heads 50 percent of the time tails 50 percent of the time or it's an unfair coin that comes up heads uh 70 percent of the time and let's say, okay, I'm going to flip it in front of you 10 times. It comes up heads 8 out of 10 times. Okay? If I asked you, don't worry about statistics, just said, what do you think, do you think this is the fair coin or the unfair coin? So you're asking me. I'm asking I'd, you. I'd say you need to flip it more times. Okay. Why do you say that? Because I don't think 10 is enough. I'd say if, if I, um, something happens 8 out of 10 times and I've only tried it 10 times, whether it's a coin or anything. Yeah. To me, I don't make any conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. So you would say, 
so let me let me let me translate what you're saying into into statistics. So you're saying if this was the fair coin, this wouldn't be that crazy of a thing to get. The right. probability of observing this if the coin was fair is pretty high. Maybe it's maybe it's 35% of the time. So, so that's get, a high p value. That would be a high p value, okay. right? And so exactly, you did a great nice. job there. Let's <laughs> say then I continued to flip the coin and then I got 16 out of 20. 16 heads out of 20. How would that change? I, I, I'd express more doubt in that it's a fair coin. Yeah. But still, I, I mean, so to me, I mean, this is totally arbitrary. 100 is basically where I'd start to, if it was, if it was still... Uh, 80, 80 out of 100. If it was 80 out of 100, yeah. I would not accept a 50-50 bet on that anymore. Yeah. Whereas if it was 8 out of 10, I would still accept a 50-50 bet on a yeah. coin flip on the 11th flip. So... So what we're doing here is we're saying, what do we need to do to overturn the idea of that it's a fair coin, right? And in statistics jargon, we'd call that the null hypothesis. What do we need to do to overturn that idea? And says, okay, well, if we get something that's very consistently not the null hypothesis, and we see it a lot, we're going to be more confident that we're not dealing with this fair coin. All these things p-values, t-statistics, z-scores, confidence intervals. They're just fancy ways of doing that. And this whole subject of finding out these little kernels of truth, yeah, that's appealing to you. Definitely. So you have, you have this scientific aspect with this heavy data analysis and statistics. You mentioned there's a bit of economics in there as well. So political science is a combination of different fields. I mean, political science in many ways, it's a relatively new field in the history of science. I mean, it's only been around since the 20, early 20th century. Yeah. And it's in many ways a, a marriage of economics and psychology and sociology and philosophy. It's kind of the child of all the... I, I said it's both the marriage and the child. Yeah. <laughs> Just mixing my metaphors it's a messed here. up family. Yeah, it's a messed up... Well, yeah, that's probably also true. Um, but... You know, and, and we are using similar, we're using techniques from economics and ideas from psychology. But what matters is we have a normative goal in mind, good governance. So that's different, though, from other sciences. Absolutely. Because yeah. I don't think other sciences have goals. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that 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 makes it more complicated. And, you know, it says, well, what is good government? And we can have, right. you know, we can have conversations about that. There's a philosophical element. There's there. a philosophical element. Yeah. And there's a, a strong philosophical normative tradition to political science. And so when I, you know, if we just, you know, circle back to our running example here, it says, I'm not just uncovering in the Canadian case that American media is polarizing Canadians. I can say, I can go further and say, that's going to have really weird effects on Canadian politics, right? And let's talk about what those, what are the downstream consequences for how we make decisions and the type of representation that we get and the type of policy issues that are talked about in Canada, right? So there is, a, you know, whether you call that normative or not, there is a little bit more to just uncovering the answer. And I'm interested in that a little bit more. <laughs> so Mark, you're interested in the field and it comes a little bit naturally with the statistics and coding mind that it sounds like you have. Is that enough? I mean, in, in high school and a little bit in undergraduate, a little bit of natural ability is more than enough to get by. Yep. I mean, you can actually do quite well by just a bit of natural ability, but still having poor work ethic, like, you know, leaving things to the last minute. Does that carry through to your PhD whatsoever? Uh, yeah, it'll, it'll come for you. Yeah. Th those habits will will eventually catch up to you. 
So what does that do to your day-to-day? How do you approach your work methodically such that you shed those bad high school habits? The most effective social scientists and graduate students are people who try to approximate a nine-to-five work week. Let's just take last semester as an example, right? Um, I TA'd the introductory statistics course. So, you know, twice a week for an hour and a half, I had to go to those lectures. Um, So that's, you know, Tuesday morning, Thursday morning would do that. And then I'd teach a review session Tuesday afternoon. And then I'd have office hours for three hours, I think, on Thursday afternoon. Now, I say all that stuff first because those are the times where I had to be somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) Like there is a place that I am required to be at that time. Other than that, I'm free. And as I talked about, it's that's a tough thing where, you know, it's Monday morning and, you know, maybe maybe you had a kind of, you know, had some fun Sunday night and you're tempted to be like, well, I don't have to be anywhere and I can just, you know. So but generally speaking, get to work for nine and then just try to, you know, sit and do my work. Is there any of that time allocation to networking? Yeah, that's a big that's a big part of it. What's that like for you? Um, I'm pretty good at once like I'm I, I'm good at talking to people is what I was gonna say there, which is an example of not being good at talking. I find it very. I mean, comparisons are a big part of it, and so you know, you'll uh, you'll be at the conference and you'll be uh, you know back in your hotel room eating a bologna sandwich and thinking like, oh no. Everybody else is like, oh, they're out having dinner with everyone that I want to talk to, and I'm behind, and all these. It's a very like, it's just a, it's just a bit of a hot box pressure cooker yeah. type situation. I know in fields where you have a kind of uh, information disparity, you'll have the average person telling the expert that they don't believe them, or maybe even that they think the expert is flat out wrong. I would think that this doesn't quite happen as much in political science, purely because it's just a little more uh, opinionated. Oh, yeah. Like I can say the Democrats or the NDP is better, but ultimately it's just an opinion. Oh, I don't know about that. You should take a plane ride in my shoes. (laughs) Let me uh, let me give you an example, I think, uh, of what you're trying to get at here. I have I have and it's not part of my political science training at all. If somebody comes up to me and says, I think that legal immigration to america should be greatly reduced Mm -hmm. that's a policy concern you can bring evidence to bear on that and talk about that but that's not a core political science that's not a political science disagreement that's a policy disagreement so that's something that reasonable people can have a conversation about alternatively when i come back up to canada a lot of people want to talk to me for good reason about trump and they want to talk to me about what happened people do seem so this is to, to make the climate change analogy is people denying climate change here's the analogy for a political scientist is people wanting to talk about why he got elected right that is not a policy concern that is a political science question what is the reason that this happened my answer and the answer of political science is that this happened because of racial attitudes the prime if there there's a whole group of things but if we would look at one answer we would say americans are racial a group of americans are racially resentful donald trump stoked those concerns and those beliefs of racial resentment and was able to get away with more than a usual politician and came to office because of it so if you if you come to me at a bar here in halifax and you say you know donald trump got elected because economic areas rural areas were left behind and they're poor and that's why he got elected i'm gonna say no 
and you don't have the evidence that I have, man. Like, yeah. like, you know, that is, that's a tough thing because like it, I don't want to, I don't want to be the person that's up on my high horse and being like, only I know the true answer. But like, you know, I've read the research, right? I've yeah. gone through the surveys. I've seen the experiments. I've seen, you know, oodles and oodles of evidence about this. And it's not an opinion. It is a probabilistic statement about the evidence that I've seen. And that's, and that's hard. And that's hard to talk about because when it comes to politics, it is something that people should have opinions about, that people should be informed about. But that crossing that barrier between this is an opinion about policy to this is an explanation for why things happen, I do have different, different and more systematic evidence about those things. Okay, Mark. Well, I, I take it all back. It sounds actually probably a little bit harder to put up with that same anti-expert sentiment in political science especially if people are not making the distinction between things that are up for healthy debate or things that are simply well-known in the political science community. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I never would have even classified why Trump was elected as a political science question in the first place or even a question that could be quantitatively answered. That's right. Because when people come up to you and say that he was elected for some other reason, and because it's my opinion, you can't tell me I'm wrong. You're saying, yes, you can tell them they're wrong. Yo, no, I can't. Well, let, let, me, let me be clear. I can't, but you could read the book Shattered by Lynn Vavrick, John Sides, and Michael Tesler, which is an excellent book that I, I would highly recommend that they wrote three political scientists who they wrote for a general audience that will go through in great detail why, indeed, the reason that Donald Trump got elected was racial resentment and not economic right. whatever. That was the technical term, <laughs> economic whatever. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I don't go around challenging the statements of political scientists, I have to say I do fit in that category of the relatively uninformed as far as politics goes. Of all the subjects in my life that I'm interested in, politics ranks pretty low down on that list. Right. I should know more about politics because it really is a bit, bit of a black hole in my life uh, because I haven't I haven't cared well one of the key <laughs> findings of political science is that it's rational for you not to care <laughs> so right. so, so we're not not too bothered about it all right I, I understand why you'd say that's a rational opinion for me to hold but in general why do we talk about rational people like in law or in your field of political science we always talk about the rational person but in reality no one really behaves rationally it's a good place to start. Oh, yeah, that's fair. You got to start somewhere. It's a good place to start. A lot of, a lot of what I do, or a, a, a big component of what I do is, so I talked about how I study voting behavior, but then I'm also interested in saying, how does that then relate to how legislators act? It's really helpful to say, okay, let's observe a set of behaviors. How do they act? Let's imagine what they would do if they were purely rational. Computers weigh the pros and cons, have all the information, and say, okay, how far does that get us in explaining what's happening? Maybe that gets us to 90% and saying, okay, 90% of this is rational, and now we only have to deal with 10%. Now we have to say, okay, 10, the 10% of behaviors that are off diagonal, that they're, that they're not the rational thing to do, why is that happening? And so it's a really, it's a really helpful way to kind of reduce the problem down mm -hmm. and saying, well, if we can make a few minimal assumptions and explain most of the behavior, that's a lot easier than just saying, okay, well, let's try to assign variables to everything and yeah. everything's irrational and we don't know. So then is democracy a reasonable system to have today if we're a bunch of irrational people? Or would it be better just to roll the dice with a monarchy and see if we get a good king or queen? I think 
I think Winston Churchill said, I'm going to butcher this quote, but it's something like, democracy is the worst system except for all the other ones. And I pretty much agree with that. I think that in relation to your point about monarchies and being a lottery, right? Democracy is a much lower variance system. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it is the possible range of, and you know, we're seeing that tested to some degree in the, in the United States or in Brazil right now where, I don't know, you know, Bolsonaro just got elected who's, um, you know, right-wing populist. So why are democracies generally a lower variance system? One of the reasons that democracies are lower variance is they traditionally have a very strong bureaucratic form of government that many of the things that's, you know, the United States government, the apparatus is huge. Think of it as a huge container ship that's chugging along and Trump's at the wheel and he can turn the wheel, but the momentum is going in a straight line and he can make, you know, small changes. And that's due to the resilience and professionalism of the American bureaucrats. You know, in, in the United States, for example, think about a, a bureaucratic, like the Department of Defense, as let's say, let's pretend it was made up of 100 people. When a new administration comes in, around 30 people at the top get subbed out. They were Democrats and now they become Republicans. In Canada, just the top person is. And so, and so the Canadian bureaucratic system is even stronger, right? I mean, that, 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 if we think of it as a container ship, that's an even bigger, heavier container ship that's even harder to steer because you don't get to replace much of the bureaucracy. So that, so that's for democracy. That's the thing that makes it lower variance. So that is, I think we're seeing right now a good protection and it can be frustrating when you're the one who wants to change things a lot. But overall, I think I'd take that low variance over the lottery of a monarchy. Like you mentioned, so going back to your Churchill comments, if democracy is the worst except for everything else, what are some of the drawbacks of democracy? I do. I think I have some concern over long-term threats like climate change. And maybe it's possible we'll get to a place in 60 years while we're still alive that said, Democracy was not well suited to dealing like a problem like that. And boy, we really messed up. And we were not because, you know, because we were were not able to respond to turn that ship in time to deal with this problem. That that's something that that maybe I think about. But that at the same time, though, that require, you know, democracy is always going to require leadership beyond what is required simply to get reelected. That is a requirement that sometimes is met and sometimes isn't. And for something like climate change, we need leaders who are better than their rational selves. Their rational selves tell them to vote maximize. And vote maximization is not going to bring us a solution to climate change. We need irrational politicians who say, yeah, you know what? It's pretty unpopular right now to put in a carbon tax. It's pretty unpopular to curb oil sands production. So we need them to do that even though it's unpopular I think that's a requirement that we have to have. Speaking of requirements, what are some things that you are required to do in your line of work that you would be happy to not do anymore? Grading is the worst part. Like, I think it's hard because you're you're judging people and they put effort into it and some people, it didn't go well or like they were bad at it. And it's like, why didn't you come ask for help? I was here. I sat in my office hours alone and like, I would have helped you and you didn't. And like, I just want to help you. I I have one professor and I really liked his thing. He said, you know, we're talking about the life of a professor and the things we have to do. And he said, 
the rest I do for free, they pay me to grade. <laughs> and I feel that way a lot. Is there anything else in your line of work, to bore your professor's phrase, uh, that they pay you to do besides yeah. grading? Uh, I mean... They live in Nashville, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, they are paying me to live there, but I, I don't know. It's not, it's, it's not so bad. It's a little swampy in the summer, but yeah. it's good music and good barbecue. Um, yeah, I mean, grading, but that's going to be for everybody all the time. You know, I think... I remember I sitting in my department and with my cohort of, of graduate students and over the course of the conversation it became clear that we had all had one point seen a counselor. Yeah. Right? Like and nobody's spoken about nobody it. Nobody had spoken about it. And yeah. it was like, "Oh, look, we were we're all dealing with the same thing. It's hard for all of us." Yeah. And it would have been helpful if at the beginning we had just said, "You know what? Like there's nothing wrong with you." There's, there's nothing wrong about it. This is a really tough thing. This is a really anxiety-producing thing. And it's okay to to not feel okay about it and to need help dealing with that because it's not our brains are not designed right. to do that. So that that to me is I think the, the 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 biggest thing that I dislike about academia is just is just dealing with that that anxiety and not knowing what's going to happen in the future. But I try to focus on the fact that you know what? I like doing it and I like the people and I'll probably be okay. So even with all of that stress, I think you're the only person I know who actually has the definitive goal of becoming a professor. That's good because they're not giving too many jobs away. Well, <laughs> so what, what's appealing about that for you? Yeah. So specifically about the, the professor Yeah. Like what, why is that goal something you can see? Yeah. That's like a good goal for Mark Tressler yeah. to have. Yeah, it's a good question. It's something I've, I've thought a lot about when I'm ending my PhD because it's a really tough gig to get. And the, the academic job market is extraordinarily difficult and you got to really want it. I think it's a couple things. One, I like doing the work. I like the research. I like doing the research, but I, I do. I like doing the teaching. I do enjoy doing that. I like the time flexibility. I like wearing jeans and boots to work. <laughs> uh, that's smaller and I think I think the biggest thing um, or one of the biggest things is that I just like the people I, I like people who also choose to be academics I like to be around those 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 sorts yeah, of people yeah. it's I, and I think that's important for any job I mean in my opinion I would say liking your colleagues could be the greatest factor in job satisfaction yeah most people I've talked to who like their jobs their coworkers are a huge part of what they like yeah one of the double-edged swords for your work, Mark, is I'd say that you have a degree of passion for it. Yeah. Regardless of a bank teller's passion for their work, as an example, it's usually off their mind as soon as they clock out. But for you, I imagine that it's kind of hard to switch gears. Yeah. Because you're probably spending time with your colleagues and you guys care about what you do. Right. So in social situations, you're probably still talking about work. Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard to separate it from the social aspects and that's tough. But I think the the more insidious thing is it's hard to separate yourself from your work. And and you get wrapped up as I am my work, my work is me. And that's a not a great place to be. Yeah. Because, well, one, academia works through negative feedback. That's 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 how it works. And you get these bad reviews and everybody gets stuff rejected from articles, you know, from journals all the time. And you get this stuff and, and you feel like, oh, no, this is this is about me. <laughs> this yeah. is very personal. And and that's really an unhealthy way to go about your work. I, I don't have a solution to it yet. It's really hard yeah. to make that separation between yourself and your work. 
I do have a theory about how one of your hobbies relates to your work. Uh-huh. And I'm talking about this long-distance trail running that you do. Yes. And for reference to anybody listening, I'm talking about distances between 20 and 80 kilometers. That's a long run. Mark Tressel, you run a lot. It's too long. It's impressive. It's actually. Yeah. But I think one of the reasons that maybe you're drawn to this, tell me what you think, is that when you're doing these long-distance runs... I can't imagine you're thinking about your day-to-day work. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Okay, like so yeah, you, yeah. like you and that's for me a lot a big part of what I like about physical activity is when you're doing it, if you like the physical activity, yeah. you're not thinking about anything else except that. Yeah, at least for that moment. Absolutely. The people talk about the uh being in a in a in a flow state. I don't know if you've heard that that uh, that term no, used is that before. related to runners high at all. I think so. Yeah. I mean, people talk about it with like surfing and stuff where you are so present, right? In what you're doing that you are, you are, there is no separation between your environment and your brain and your consciousness. Oh, we're getting all metaphysical here, but, but you know, there, there is, you know, there is a state where you get from surfing or rock climbing or something. You and I both also rock climb. And, you know, when you're super concentrating on, on a really hard move, Right. It's the most present you are in your entire life. Right. Like, for sure. like that is that is you are not you're not worrying about what you're going to eat for dinner or or, or no. you know, you're not thinking about that conversation. You had Literally, yesterday. the building could have caught on fire. Yeah. yeah you yeah. might not know. Yeah. Please, please notice if the building catches yeah. on fire. Uh, so like that, that I think that is a great that's why I think sports and there's other things you can do that it's not sports. Playing music can be like this sometimes, sure. too, where like, you know, that's a great antidote to a lot of the problems that not just graduate students but people in professions that are very anxiety producing that's mm-hmm. a great antidote to, to to those things so you've lived in nashville for how long for five and a half years and then how long were you in montreal well i did four-year undergrad i took a year off where i was researching at mcgill but wasn't in the program and then i did a two years master's so i was there for seven years so next to halifax montreal has been your home for the longest period of time yep next to montreal it's been nashville that's right and the, but the thing that you kind of were talking about earlier is this uncertain future that you have because of your line of work. You don't know where your next home would be or how long that will be your home. No, I do not. And you don't have a ton of control over that? No, I do not. <laughs> is it fair to say that like the more control you want over that, the less likely you will be to em- get employed? Yeah, that's 100% true. I, I think, I think you know, academics often say the price of being an academic and having control over your day, day to day, I can wake up whenever I want. I can mm-hmm. go home from work. Is a lack of geographic control. Yeah, you just you go where the job is. Academic jobs are hard to get. They don't open up very often. There were, I can tell you, in North America this year, in my field of political science, there was seventy-one jobs for all of the PhDs. I know that on average, around twenty percent get jobs. Mark, I, I do have a good way, a reliable way for you to get more employment opportunities is you got to look the part. I'm suggesting adding more turtlenecks to your wardrobe. Yeah, I think uh, I think turtleneck, tweed jacket. Tweed jacket. Yeah, yeah. It is funny because I, I, my office at Vanderbilt is on the third floor of the freshman dining hall. And... I am a 30-year-old man who gets uh, confused for an 18-year-old. Uh, so 
I, I figure if I if I got a job, I gotta like I really gotta up the game on the wardrobe to really like fair. Yeah. 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 Do they have the opposite of just for men? Oh, you're you're thinking you need the salt and pepper look. I'll go a little gray. I'll get half moon spectacles, tweed elbow patches. I'm gonna drive a sob. I know they don't make them anymore, but I'll find one. What about uh, like personality? Because I mean, if if students are coming to talk to you, like they kind of expect you to behave a certain way because you're sitting in an office in a university. Yeah. Do you feel like you have to live up to that and maybe dial down your sense of humor a bit? No, I try. I generally don't dial down my sense of humor. Yeah. Too much. Or even silliness. I guess. Silly. No, I like. I think I'm. I. You know, it, it's it's a fine line, right? Because you need to have the respect, and you need right. Like I'm also. I don't want to be the stereotype of like a. Uh, of like you know, sit on the front of the desk, roll up the sleeves, and be like, "I'm not like the other. I'm not like the other professors." <laughs> you can call me Chad. You've never came into class later than all the students <laughs> plopped your motorcycle helmet down on the desk <laughs> and said, "Everyone, turn to page six of your books." And then rip it out. <laughs> I'm not like your other. Teachers. I'm not like your other teachers. <laughs> I had a history professor like that at McGill, and his big thing was, every class he would spend a little bit of time talking about how it doesn't make any sense for kids these days to be really into Bob Dylan, but not like Bruce Springsteen. Uh-huh. And that was his whole thing. He was flummoxed. It's funny. Well, I mean, he might be right, but I don't care. Like, <laughs> like he, he might, it's one of those things where... <laughs> yeah, I, I really, I just picture you raising your hand to answer that question in his class and being like, I actually don't care. Thank you very much, Mark Tressler, for joining me. You'll have to forgive me, though, because I forgot to get Mark to do a proper sign-off. But that's okay, because he did answer many of my lingering questions. For starters, and perhaps most importantly, I want everybody to understand the difference between a policy or political statement and a statement of political science. The former is an arena for opinions, hearsay, anecdotes, and debate that's healthy and unhealthy. But when you add that word science, it means you enter the arena of evidence, information, and critical evaluation. I will assume that none of your family dinner arguments have been done, using my new favorite term, probabilistic statements. Although, if you are looking to stay out of these conversations altogether, I'm comforted to learn that political scientists won't blame you for being rational. But there is more. I've always heard this word bureaucracy, and I've had a negative association with it. Having images conjured up of stagnant and slow-moving political bodies. But you know what? If bureaucracy puts some safety checks and balances in place on a system that otherwise would have madmen immediately desecrate civil liberties and progress, well, bureaucracy can't be all that bad. Next time you go into a voting booth, maybe think for a second and vote for the irrational politician because that might be the one to make actual progress. Though I can probably imagine Mark Tressler telling me, Mike, that's not how it works. Education certainly has its place, and I think Mark's a shining example of that. But the next time you hear from me, I'll be talking to probably the most entrepreneurial guy I know, owner and operator of the Sugar Shack Recording Studio in London, Ontario, Simon Larochette. And as much as you'd like to believe that being an audio entrepreneur is an enviable position where you just hang out with cool bands all day, be prepared to put in the time. Get an inside look at the life of an audio engineer next time on How To. Thanks again for joining me. 
I had a great time.